Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bring, bring it Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Dan, Arsenal fan. You can get me on Twitter at the underscore jersey underscore fits. Hi, I'm Tad, Liverpool fan. You can get me at Tad Predicts. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today, guys, and happy debut to Tad, who we're super delighted to finally have on the show. Uh, I figured we'd start off by talking about what was uh, maybe a more convincing uh, conversation before the final couple of matches. But at one point this week, there were literally more penalty goals than non-penalty goals coming into Sunday. Uh, 8 of 15, which is pretty insane. Uh, and I was just kind of wondering from you guys, have you noticed a, a weird increase in penalties just today on the season in general? We try to avoid talking too much about individual refereeing decisions, but if it's needed to make your point, go ahead. So I haven't seen the numbers for like, if there's literally more penalties this season, but it doesn't seem like there's been a wild increase just anecdotally. Um, obviously this weekend is an outlier on outliers um, for there to be eight and 15, like more more penalty goals than non-penalty goals at like any time where more than half the matches have been played is just kind of ridiculous. Um, but I think that's just like, you know, stuff happens. Uh, in terms of like penalties being easier to win, I, just, I that might be something of a product of maybe not even VAR. It's, VAR I think has something to do with it because it's there's fewer times where the refs can just be like, I'm just going to let that go because it's going to get pulled back if it's really like like the pulling pulling in the box, there's just some stuff that normally could be let go that if it gets reviewed, like, well, I'm now reviewing it. I can't really let it go again. Um, but, and something of it just like, a, the way the rules are, it's just kind of easy to win a penalty if you think about, if you like, there's just lots of little fouls that get you a penalty kick, which now that there's more emphasis on it means there's going to be more penalties. Again, I don't know if there actually are. That's just something that can happen. Yeah, from my perspective, um, I'm, I initially was wondering whether or not it was the the bad the weather, whether it's you know a lot of rain, oh, yeah. if people are going to be affected by that, not wanting to dive into tackles and then you know making mistakes. And then the second thing was whether or not because we've had a busy run of fixtures, um, for a lot of players who aren't used to playing sort of three games a week, whether or not just like mental brain farts. Um, I mean, that that's usually the first thing to go when you are tired is your mental, you know, you start making mental mistakes. But then I looked at some of the penalties that, that got given. And <laughs> it, I think it's 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 more the attackers knowing if there's any contact in the box, um, I may as well go down because it seems like when it does go too far, the, the issue is more about was there contact, not necessarily um, 
what was the context behind that? Especially if it's given as a penalty, it's really hard to be like, no, that's not a penalty when there's clearly contact. Exactly, exactly. I mean, yeah, I, I, we won't go into details with the referees um, in some of those decisions. But I think also, you know, I thought a few of those penalties, especially this weekend, were just um, a forward player running with the ball and then just dragging their foot, knowing contact is about to arrive. And then as soon as it's, you know, as soon as they feel it, they just carry on going down anyway. So I think maybe attackers are getting smarter about it, if if that's a politically correct way to say <laughs> when you're dealing with penalties. But it's definitely something I think that strikers or attacking players are more aware of and, and know they might get a favorable decision if there's any form of contact. That's a really interesting point thinking about it is as you know, maybe an intelligence thing or trying to game the system some. I saw a lot of takes, particularly yesterday, about how biased it was towards the big clubs, obviously. City, Chelsea, United, and Liverpool all basically getting wins off of one or more penalties in Chelsea's case. Uh, So there's often this discussion about whether it's a big club bias thing, but do you think uh, there's maybe some other reasons behind it, like maybe, you know, focusing on it more or having players with more technical skill, which makes it easier for them to be kind of hacked down. So I think it's like indirectly a big club thing, but that's just because big clubs tend to also be better, like not better clubs, but, you know, better teams. Um, so as you say, they have players with more technical skill and they tend to have more of the ball and more opportunities inside the box. And just like when you're in the box more, you're more like there's more time for you to get fouled and then more time for there to be a penalty. So like, I think technically you could argue there's a big club bias, but it's very indirect in the sense that like, yeah, Liverpool are going to win more penalties than Norwich because they're going to be in the box a lot more and they're going to have these really good players who can make defenders look stupid um, and can make them make mistakes. So you could argue it's a big club bias, but I don't think you can do that in like a honest kind of thing. It's like, it's just because they have better players and they're going to be, they have more opportunities to win penalties. They're also going to get more penalties. Not like the refs are like, I'm going to give it to the big club because I'm evil or whatever. Uh, <laughs> or it's, it's just, that's just how, when there, when there's more opportunities for them to win penalties and they have better players who are more uh, skillful to win those penalties, they're going to then get more penalties. Yeah, I'd echo everything Dan said on that perspective. Just more opportunities to to get penalties and especially a lot of the bigger clubs their players are willing to to dribble a lot more with the ball in the box than necessarily getting quick shots um mm-hmm. fired off and, and they've got that maybe more patience or they're allowed to have more patience with with the game plans that they employ but also just maybe if it it, it flared up this weekend just it's i don't know if it it correlates but all of those teams, you know, we mentioned the Man Cities, the Chelsea's, the Liverpool's that did get penalties. Apart from Man United, um, everyone else was playing at home. And whether or not the refs got the crowd on his back, you know, anytime a player goes down, if, if that was a factor as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that I hadn't really considered. Uh, also, if you're listening to this and you are a fan of a smaller club and don't really love a Tottenham, Arsenal, and Liverpool fan telling you that the big clubs should get more penalties, feel free to <laughs> let us know uh, if we could address that with some of our other guests in future. Um, another, I, Actually, I could, you could argue, also argue it's like, you know the phenomenon where if for like grading papers where the rubric is kind of nebulous and in, in, for interpretation as penalties are? Like 
teachers are generally more inclined to give better grades to people who have had better grades in the past. Mm. It's kind of a similar thing. Like referees are more inclined to think, yeah, that Mo Salah is probably going to get fouled by that defender because he's Mo Salah is really good. Um, so, and then like, as we said earlier with um, VAR, if there is some contact, even it might not be enough contact, but the ruling on the field is a penalty. It has been hard to overturn. So you could also argue that is that could play into it as well. Yep, I think that totally makes sense, but also understand why it would be so frustrating for for a smaller club to have a performance where the the difference was one penalty goal, because then you feel like hard done by because in theory you played well enough to get a point, but then because of this one decision you didn't get it. But you know, I think one of the good things about XG, despite how horrendously it's used these days, is that it does kind of show that on balance maybe uh you weren't as hard done by as you could have been but still totally get why that emotional reaction comes to the fore especially in a place like twitter as i'm sure we all know um another big thing that was happening this week was tottenham's covid outbreak uh, ended up being double digits in terms of players and staff ended up having to what they thought was postpone the ren match but looks like that might not go ahead and tottenham might just be out of the European Conference League. Um, obviously, the match at the weekend was postponed. Leicester now seems like it might actually be on because uh, Tottenham players were allowed to return to training today, but the the actual training uh, facilities outside of the pitches was not actually open as they try to avoid more spread there. One of the interesting things about what happened this week was UEFA has a very firm rule that if you have less than 13 available players, your match is automatically you know, kind of binned off and then you can negotiate whether it's postponed or canceled. Whereas in the Premier League, you basically just have to phone them up and be like, guys, it's pretty rough out here. Can we please not play? Um, so a very formal structure versus a very kind of case-by-case structure. And I'm just curious how you felt that those two institutions handled the situation over the past week. First off, there's no way the games could be played. as It's just there's too much, too much spread. Um, so from that perspective, great, fantastic. Very glad they didn't try and just be like, no, it's fine. We can just push through and play it anyway. Um, as far as like, it's probably better to do it on a case-by-case basis because anything where the stakes are reasonably high like this and it's kind of ne- nebulous, hard cutoffs are generally, I don't think, a good idea. Because um, like... If you only, if you especially well, this for like you're you're not necessarily going to test positive immediately. It's like, oh well, we you need to have eight players um, test positive for the match to be postponed, and you only had seven, and then you go play the match because you have to, and then a day later you three more people test positive. That that can be that can lead to obviously bad outcomes. Um, whereas something that's a bit more case by case, you can kind of follow trends a bit more than have it be a hard and fast rule. So I think that's a better way to do it. So props to Premier League, I guess. I think the difficulty that comes with the cup competitions is you can't really pause the cup um, to to have mm-hmm. Spurs play their game. Uh, whereas in a league campaign, they could tag that game on even towards the, the end of the season and then kind of make it up depending on availability. So I think that's probably why you've got the different uh, rule sets that they have in place. But, you know, in, in, in terms of Spurs in particular, I mean, it's it's just, it's a weird thing because, you know, you want everyone to be safe and you're hoping that, um, you know, that nothing serious comes of it. But some of the, the, the outrage, outrageous hot takes that I've heard with regards to why Spurs aren't <laughs> playing games at the moment uh, has been quite interesting. 
my wife's a Spurs fan, so I, I, I always hear interesting stories, conspiracy theories about why Spurs um, Spurs are missing games at the moment and how it's beneficial for them and intentional. I, I, look, I don't think it's anything like that. And um, I think you mentioned, Kev, before we, we did the podcast that two other clubs have started to see the the rise in, in numbers uh, in the Premier League as well. So I don't know if it's, if that's going to have a bigger impact on the Premier League. It's not just a Spurs thing. It's it's a it's a league wide thing that could could have ramifications. Yeah, hey, thank you very much for saying that it isn't beneficial to Tottenham because it was weird seeing the people that said that it was. And they're like, more time under Conte. That's just what they wanted. Like, the entire training ground wasn't shut down and all of our players weren't quarantined <laughs> this week. I don't really know what kind of competitive advantage that was going to provide. Um, but yeah, I, I think you make a really good point. Apparently, Manchester United and Asta Villa both dealing with, with smaller outbreaks, at, at least at, at time of recording, um, than what Tottenham were going through. But the fact that they've both had them, I think Lesser had a couple of players maybe a week or so ago. I think that's one of the reasons I was curious about this either case by case or larger scale, you know, formal policy about it is do you think that the Premier League will have to institute something more strong or or a bit more um, consistent throughout because we might be seeing an increase in positivity throughout these clubs? I still think it's fine to keep it on a case by case basis, but be more but yeah, they do have to be prepared to postpone games if that's the way they're going to do things because I I could definitely see a pretty significant rise in positivity as is already apparently happening. Um, I haven't been able to find anything since the Premier League released uh, their numbers in mid-October, but at that point, 68% of Premier League players were fully vaccinated and 81% had had um, at least one dose of the vaccine. Um, at this point, I would think it's probably closer to that 80% number because I don't see why you would get one dose and then not the second. Um, but even if it's only like, like 80%, that's not good. That's not a good uptake number. Like they need a lot more, especially with, and then that doesn't even take into account how, what percentage of them are, have a, had a booster shot. Um, I don't know if the status of that is for, um, if the players are eligible in the United Kingdom for that, but um, it's like, with the new variant running around Omicron, it seems very, very contagious. Not necessarily going to, or it doesn't look like it, it might, this is all up for change as we get more research on Omicron, but it might not actually make them that sick, but that's not what is going to cancel games. Positive tests are what's going to cancel games. Um, and we could get a lot of those if the, if the vaccination rate is still not in like the upper 90%. Um, so um, I, like, I think it's fine to keep it on a case-by-case basis, but the Premier League needs to be prepared to cancel games. Especially during this busy time period, um, over the festive period, there's so many fixtures that are going to be played over this this time. And I think the Premier League will be trying to get in as many of those games as possible. So I think they will probably keep it case-by-case case and then maybe sometime, you know... <sighs> The season just gets busier and busier, really, looking at the schedules. I don't know if there is a place where they would have a window to kind of just shut things down for two weeks or something like that. But one, I think they've got pressure in terms of the amount of fixtures that are being played at the moment. And then two, the economic impact, um, you know, shutting things down had last time around for Premier League teams, especially now, as Dana said, well, hopefully, um, you know, majority of people or larger majority of people would have had that second jab by now or at least would have had two by now um whether they can think you know we can get by it i mean i, I 
it's it's a tricky situation because they are, it's not just um it's it's not just the Premier League. It's also fans as well that travel, you know, to to go watch games or, or travel around the world to go watch games. Uh, what impact that has on on them? Um, but yeah, it's. <laughs> I don't think there's a win-win situation for the Premier League with this one. Yeah, I agree, and it does seem like they've taken a step in the right direction by air quotes returning to emergency COVID nineteen measures. Not sure any of us actually know what those were or what we're returning to now. But I did have a thought earlier in the day, and since we were all chatting NFL before we hit the record button, I thought I'd ask you guys. So the NFL last year would reschedule your games, but this year, if your match is forfeited because of a COVID outbreak, it's on you. It's on you as a team, and you end up losing that game. There are also differences between who was allowed uh, in the facilities with masks and without masks, depending on if you were vaccinated or not. Do you think a system like that would work in the Premier League, or does that drift a little bit too close to whether or not it aligns with the, the politics there? It's hard to implement that now. Um, also, if, was, was that collectively bargained in the NFL? I don't recall. I, yeah, I can't. Uh, that's That's... That's a tough policy to institute. Um, it would be easier if you're, because I know if the NFL, um, if your team forfeits, you your team doesn't get paid. I assume there's no way the Premier League can do that. Um, like with the in midseason, just implement it without like serious negotiation. Um, so I it it seems like a very difficult policy to implement in the middle of the season, um, and without like a, a clear collective bargaining period. Um, so I. I'm sympath- I think that's a, not a bad policy, um, but I'm not sure it can be implemented like uh, halfway through. That seems really, really tough. And it, it seems more like um, the Premier League is kind of, it, you know, working with the clubs, um, you know, putting the inverted commas policies in place, as you said, making stricter rules for all of the players, you know, international travel and all of that, at least. There's no international break at the moment. But whereas the NFL, I thought it was more internal um, in terms of the policies were being implemented inside the organizations. And some organizations just came out straight away and said, you know, everyone needs to be vaccinated. Mm. Um, and and they, they did a heavy drive of vaccination. They had um, facilities available for players to get vaccinated and all that. So it seemed like there was a more um, a bigger drive from the franchises themselves. Whereas it, to me, it feels like the Premier League. It's more um, the teams working with uh, the league, and and when neither of them are taking the major responsibility with regards to that, I think that then leans maybe to the assumption that they don't want to get into the politics of it. Uh, and if they didn't want to do that at the beginning of the season when they had time to sit down and look at everything, I don't see how. They're going to have time to to look through everything during the season, as Dan was saying. Yeah, I, I think you all make some excellent points there. Uh, hopefully it doesn't get too bad throughout the season. As you were saying, Ted, there's, there's not much left of season, even though we haven't even reached the midway point to put all of these matches. Although in Tottenham's particular case, getting kicked out of the European Conference League would actually provide the midweeks to make up the Premier League matches that have been missed. So a weird kind of self-solving issue. For Tottenham in particular there. Uh, we've all been kind of talking about the, the congested winter period and the effect that this could have on it, but kind of more on the footballing side. Uh, already a couple matches in, but still a lot of matches to go before we hit the new year. I was just curious how your teams have 
fared in your eyes thus far and where you think you might be in the table come that first FA Cup weekend in January? Uh, well, we really like to win a game, then lose a game. Um, I don't know. We're pretty mid-table. Uh, we're not mid-table. I think we're six. We're, we are six, but we we play like a, mid a mid-table team. Um, like we're negative one goal difference. Uh, you know, one week we'll play pretty well and beat a team. Then next week we'll, we'll lose to Everton uh, and we'll get smashed by Liverpool. Like I would suspect we'll probably be hovering around that's I guess some of it actually depends on how many games Tottenham get to play for literally where we will um, be in the table, but probably around that like seven or eight range. From a Liverpool perspective, I think they, they don't have a choice other than to be at the top of the table come January because there's, in inverted commas, a little tournament. I mean, I don't even want to get into that whole thing anyway, but they, they, the, the club interview that got taken out of context. But there is the big tournament, you know, the AFCON with Salah, Mane, um, Keita, I think, in, in there as well. And looking at the season that Salah's had this season, he's been so pivotal to everything that Liverpool's doing. And if Liverpool aren't top of the league by then, maybe with like a three-point buffer or something, um, it could be... It, it could be really tough to then make up the gap on, I'm looking at especially Man City. Um, I think they're kind of in third gear at the moment and are top of the league, which is a very scary thought. If you're a Liverpool fan, when you think, you know, Salah's, you know, can he play any better than he's currently playing? You hope he can. But if we've got players that are really playing and performing well and we're still behind Man City at this stage, we kind of need to hop ahead of them now during this December period, which to be fair is probably Klopp's best um, month in terms of just the amount of points that he does score uh, for Liverpool. He usually does well in December. So if Liverpool can sort of create a inverted commas buffer of about three points or so um, from Man City and obviously not going to ignore Chelsea up there as well, then Hopefully, by the time AFCON comes, they've got a little bit of leeway to, you know, to get things going again without Mane and Salah in the team and, and, and then hope that they're not too far behind when, when those guys come back. Yeah, it'll certainly be a tough period in bringing up AFCON. Yeah, that is going to throw a really weird wrench in things this year. And then obviously next year, we're going to have the World Cup around this time, which is going to cause even more chaos but uh we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with more club specific questions for each of our guests how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. All right, and we are back, Dan. We'll start off with you talking about Arsenal. I think we have to start off by talking about Odegaard, who obviously has been in really good form the past few weeks. Uh, Went and did a little digging here. Odegaard's most goals ever in a La Liga season, uh, four. Uh, most goals this season for Arsenal is also four. So it's a pretty stark change there. Do you think it's just his general development? Because obviously he is still a pretty young player. Do you think it's always being utilized by Arteta? Why do you think we're just kind of seeing the goals coming from him when throughout his career it hasn't really been the biggest strength in, in his game? Uh, some of it is just, I think some of it's finishing. Um, he's just scoring on. I'll I'll check to see how many shots he's taken the last couple of games, but it it can't be that many, and he just happened to score on a lot of them. Um, but he's also been popping into some very good positions, so like I'm not gonna totally devalue that. Um, but he's got into some very interesting. I I think all the goals are from all three of his goals in his last uh, three games have been not the same, but quite similar, where he gets into a decent position in the box and there's a pullback, and then he gets on the end of it. Now this this the goal this week was quite. Um, Scrappy and a bit ridiculous, but um, it's a goal nonetheless. Uh, but it's they've all been of that. He's just been finding little pockets of space and has been um, been taking advantage when he's been getting in there. I, like I, he's definitely overperforming, like what you would expect. Like, he's he scored more goals from those shots than you would expect one to score from those shots. But uh, just the movement and getting into those pockets is something I think can be a bit more of a sustainable skill, even if like scoring at this rate um, probably isn't. But um, as far as it, is it how he's been used, um, probably not. I, I don't think it's like a usage thing. I think it's just he's been picking up these little pockets better than um, he has in other parts of his, at least his Arsenal career. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably just he's been getting into those spaces, um, which is not something he's always done. Uh, and this time he's just putting them away at a quite comically high rate. <laughs> Yeah, and he has obviously always been a talented player, but like I said, not the goals didn't always come, and so maybe maybe this is a bit of career regression where he's deserved more goals throughout his career, and they're just happening to happening to stack up right now. Uh, obviously, you I mean, need like I, I do want to. There is definitely like like I said, he is getting into positions. He's earning the goals in a sense. He's probably not earning this many goals, but he is like showing something with getting into these spaces because that's like a real skill, being able to get in spaces at the right time and being in just in the right position to take a good shot. Gotcha. And I think it's kind of needed because currently you're just eighth in goals scored in the Premier League. Somebody that hope you were probably hoping to score more of those is Aubameyang, who last time I tried to get you to praise and you kind of withheld that a little bit. Now not even playing because of some disciplinary stuff going on at the club. Uh, what's the situation kind of going on with him and why do you think the goals aren't coming that freely right now? Um, I mean, some of it is probably just the attack isn't that good as a whole, but also like he's 32. He's just, he's getting on a bit. Um, he's also like, I don't know. He's just not that good, right? He's, he's just not that good. I'm not, he's 32. He's probably over the hill. Um, I don't want to act like he's a bad striker now, but he's not getting very many shots. And it's not just like, 
look at the stat sheet, oh, he's only getting this many shots. You can also kind of see it sometimes where it's like, man, I really would have thought he got got on the end of that ball and he didn't. And now instead of that being a shot, it's just enough. It's nothing. The other team has the ball now. Um, some of it is, I'm sure, part of like Arsenal has never been a good attack under Arteta, which probably doesn't help and probably makes it look worse for him. But also some of it is probably he's he's up he's up there in age now. He's a guy who who deemed his entire career success on just that he was fast is grossly unfair. But his pace has been a big a big part of why he has been able to get on the end of so many good chances in his career. Um, and when you get older, you lose some of that. And I think that's definitely happened. Um, the shots aren't really coming. He's below three shots per 90, which he's never been a huge shot guy, but he's below three shots and he's no longer getting those like a big chance every game like he used to. Um, so some of it is probably the attack as, as a whole isn't very good, but also he's just old, he's old at this point, which is not something that's going to change. Um, like maybe I, Maybe he'll be at a bit better um, throughout the season as maybe the attack gels a bit eventually. Uh, it hasn't gelled by now under Arteta, so I'm not really sure why it would now. But hey, maybe um, more time with Odegaard, more time with all the, uh, this young attack growing together. That could help his goal tally a little, but also he's 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 fighting against Father Time and you tend not to win that fight. Yeah, and for a player that did rely on his pace the way he did and constantly outshot his XG, having a drop in shots is going to have a pretty stark effect on his total goal output. Um, kind of touching on some of those underlying stats, I know a lot of times we'll bring you on and ask you about an individual's performance or Arteta's performance and if it's actually the turnaround and all of that stuff. But I was just wondering if there are some underlying stats that you're kind of keeping an eye on right now that are telling maybe a different story than than the table or your goal scored or anything like that. I mean... There's some really simple stuff. Like we just don't, just don't shoot. Like we don't. Our ex, our expected goals for is just, it's not very high. We're at twenty and a half, um, and we have twenty one goals. So it's not it's not like that's a mirage where we're under we're just finishing really poorly. We just don't attack well. Um, and like even when we were, it's not like there's been some big drop off. I know, just that's kind of how football's covered. Where like oh you win and you're on top of the world and then you lose and you're on the bottom of it. That's just how things work but we were never we were never as good we were, I don't think we were the fourth best team um last time I was on with Jake he asked I thought we could get top four and I said I'm pretty sure we won't um because we there's there's no real indicator that we're a top four side um it's really more about whether we can get top six um and currently we are six in shots per game which is something we're lower on expected goals but um it's that kind of tracks we don't take necessarily that we don't get a lot of those big chances um i think right now in terms of total expected goals we are um closer to mid table like around 10th um i don't know if if you've really been following arsenal and not just been looking at where they fluctuate up in the table i think you know that we're not a top four side maybe that's just me being like how i watch the game is like that's i'm just a pessimist and that's why i think that but I think if you've really been paying attention, you can probably figure out we're not that we're not a top four team, which is fine, I guess. Um, but it, I guess the, the biggest factor in terms of why we are where we are is the attack is bad and it has never been good under Arteta, which has been the biggest problem for Arsenal for ever since he's come around um, and probably even a bit before then. 
So, which is funny considering Arsenal's reputation as like this attacking powerhouse you can't defend. That's not been the case for a couple of years now. Um, the attack is just not good. And um, I don't really see that changing, like unless unless obviously we buy someone. Um, I think striker is a really, really big um, position of need, which is really bad when we have all those wages devoted to Aubameyang and Lacazette. Um, but I think that's the case. Like striker is probably the biggest attack, the biggest position of need right now. Gotcha. Well, we'll switch over to you now, Tad, and kind of keep the theme there. Uh, obviously, you had a lot of chances yesterday. Uh, significantly more XG. End up with the 1-0 win with the penalty from Salah, which we kind of alluded to earlier. Uh, and I was just kind of curious if you were more impressed by uh, Martinez and his goalkeeping abilities, or if you were just more frustrated with your general finishing. <laughs> I think more frustrated with the general finishing because, you know, there are times where you make the keeper... And, and Martinez has had some really good games of late, um, you know, this season, and especially having come from Arsenal with the reputation that he came with, um, I thought he he's really done well at at Villa. But in terms of Liverpool, I thought it was more to do with our decision making in the final third, um, where you know where we were looking to place our shots or just heading through the ball. I think. It didn't help that um, Jota wasn't in on the pitch. Um, Firmino obviously is not renowned as a big finisher, and, and I don't think he really is, to to be honest. So him being there, it would have been maybe he would be creating easier chances, maybe for some of the other guys to to get shots on target or to to get better shot opportunities. But I think um, the experiment with Ox playing as the false nine didn't help the flow of the game as much as we would have hoped for it to, to happen. And obviously Origi, I think, was meant to start, but he he had a bit of a knock, so he ended up not even featuring in the match day squad. So probably that played a factor as well. But yeah, I think it's, it was more to do with Liverpool's decision-making, not just um, in terms of your final ball, but also what shot selection we were making when we did get into those positions. And you could see, especially from... Salah, a few frustrating moments where he's kind of jumping up and down in frustration. Uh, and then Mane, another frustrating game from him from a finishing standpoint where you're thinking he could have done a lot better with some of the chances he did get. But, I mean, we we had been spoiled for goals, um, you know, so far this season. So I think it's only natural for us to have games like this where we are a bit frustrated. But... The important thing is just being able to get through those games with a win um, and hope that then the the goals start to to pop back up again like they did earlier in the season. Yeah, and as we talk about season-long trends, you're actually underperforming your XG for the year, which is uh, <laughs> a little insane considering how many you've already scored. I think it was two weeks ago we did the show and talked about how three of the six top goal scorers in the Premier League are all at Liverpool. Uh, probably, yeah, <laughs> a little weird to see just the one goal go in on the day. And you also mentioned some of the wastefulness, that that three-on-one that Salah passed right into the feet of the defender. Uh, probably yeah. one of those moments where you're like, how did that not end up being a goal? Uh, you mentioned Jota there, who obviously has been a fantastic addition uh, to Klopp's side. Kind of keeps you in that front three that used to be Firmino just now. It's Jota in there. But when you, he's either on the bench or when you have a situation like with what happened 
um, where you missed your striker because of a, a, a knock that happened not that far from game time. Is there still that like cry out for a number nine traditional or otherwise within the Liverpool fan base? Or is there just a, enough belief in Klopp and you've seen enough success without a traditional nine that it's no longer really a thing that the fan base is looking for? I think it will always be one of the, the glaring questions when it comes to, uh, you know, Klopp's Liverpool is what would have been if they did have a traditional number nine up there, you know, a, 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 someone that you can trust to get the odd 15 to 20 goals in a season. But then the question is, how much does that take away from a Salah or from a Mane in terms of goal yeah. contribution? I think the 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 biggest thing is you know Jota coming into this season he's got those attributes of a more he he leans more towards a traditional nine than some of the other people we have had and and I leave Origi to the side um with regards to this conversation because in terms of finishing ability and you know technique wise I do think Origi is one of the better finishers at the club it's just sometimes, you know, his appetite for the game, especially last season, wasn't as high. This season, he's done really well when he's been asked to come in. And, and I think he's, he's shown that with the production that he has had. But with regards to Jota, he seems to be more hungry for goals than necessary creativity. Whereas for the best part of Firmino's, Firmino's time... Um, as Liverpool's number nine, it was more about the creative side. It, you know, if he scores, he gets to dance and 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 have a celebration about that. But I think he was the key thing with him was more about what he brought to the team defensively from a pressing standpoint, and then the creativity that he brought. You know, when you got the likes of Salah and Mane playing out wide, Jota's more of a finisher. He he seems to make a lot more runs that a, a natural number nine would make, and the interesting thing this season is to start off the season, um, you know, I think the idea was always for Jota to take over from Firmino this season. But there were issues with uh, Jota's fitness in terms of not being able to rely on him to start games and finish games. They kind of knew we have to take him off at some point in time. And you don't always want to be starting that kind of player because, you know, game state could be different where you need him to stay the full 90. So the club spoke to him. I, I don't think there was any malice in it. It was quite an encouraging conversation from what I heard and basically told him, look, you know, you, you can have the keys here if you if you actually focus, get your fitness up, make yourself more reliable. And, and we've seen that this season where he's starting and finishing games and critically he's getting into sort of six-yard box situations late into games. So he's still having the capacity to, you know, have the appetite to go and get goals. And then most importantly is his numbers are looking really good from a defensive standpoint. So he's bringing um, similar numbers to what Firmino would bring from a defensive side uh, in terms of pressing and closing down spaces. But he's got a far better finishing um, capacity than Firmino does. So it will be interesting to see if, he continues, you know, in that role. In, in terms of a traditional number nine, I think one of the other issues as well is the price that comes with a lot of the traditional number nines that you're probably looking at to come in to Liverpool and hold that starting position. Liverpool usually don't pay that kind of price for players. Um, it, it may sound weird, but if if you look at when we do spend money, it's 
it's usually not in the number nine spot, unfortunately, especially in this Klopp system. He's he's happy to to kind of go with the two wide players and Mane and Salah being the main goal contributors, and then we can bring other players into it. And just lastly, in terms of that number nine, it might be even further away if you look at the amount of goals Liverpool are getting from midfield this season. We've been used to, you know, this Klopp Liverpool being having midfielders that are kind of water carriers, or at the very least, that's that's what they would be referred to, where they're not necessarily a, a threat in front of goal, but they do cover a lot of ground and allow our fullbacks to bomb forward and be the creative players. But this season, we've got a whole lot of goals from midfield. So maybe that's the evolution is maintain sort of a Jota Firmino type player that's helping us with the pressing defensively, contributes with goals every now and then, but just increase the goals from midfield a little bit more. And and that hopefully covers, you know, the need to have a traditional nine up top. Interesting. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about was what's the general feeling right now? Does this feel like the title winning year or does this feel like the year before where you and City just pushed each other all the way to the end and they just didn't drop points the entire second half of the season? I think it's it's more City seem more controlled than Liverpool this season. This this Liverpool looks more like a cup winning team. So the one that went and won the Champions League rather than the one that, that went and <laughs> yeah, sorry to bring that one up, Kev. Um, but yeah, so it, it's more a team that's suited to games where teams have to attack us and they have to come for us and, and we've got lots of space and we can kind of, you know, overload spaces on out wide. And then you've got now the creativity of Thiago in there. You've got Fabinho, you know, th- them two in midfield plus one, whoever the one ends up being and... I think that's that's then an issue with regards to rotation and and keeping all the players' chronic loads at a at a good place. But that seems to be a good base um, for a, a a cup run. So I, I'm, you can never really be confident in the in the Champions League because there's so many good teams. But I see us having a stronger chance in the Champions League than in the league because, as I said, um, closer to the beginning of the podcast, City don't look like they've gone past third gear yet this season, and yet. They look so in control, and that bodes well for me from their perspective um, in terms of a league campaign where you can you can kind of go through large spells of games in third gear, and then if you know you're drawing a game or if you're losing a game and you need to kick it up a notch, they seem to be able to do that, and and that's kind of saving their legs so to, so to speak. Um, whereas Liverpool, I think it's. It's a very emotional game, every single game that we're playing. And whether you can maintain that for an entire league campaign is very difficult to do. But in cup games, it's it's a lot easier to get up for a cup game and then bring out those brick performances. And I suppose, you know, with crowds back, Anfield in, in cup games, that's that's always, you know, a, a fixture that Liverpool can be confident in in getting a result in. So, yeah, I, I think it's more it's more a cup team this season than a league team. And I don't see us doing much in January to to address that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for big ears again this year. But as I said, there's so many, so many big teams in that tournament, like thinking of winning it right now. It's kind of a pipe dream. Um, League, just trying to hold on, 
hope that AFCON doesn't affect us too badly and then we'll kind of see where we are come February and, and reassess then. Certainly makes sense. And yeah, I second that point on City, who I don't think we've even really talked much about this year. We keep talking about Chelsea because we kind of had them as preseason favorites coming in. We've talked about Liverpool because of the goal scoring and all that stuff. City are just, like you said, kind of quietly going about their business, currently sat top of the table with just two losses on the year, albeit that being double the amount that Liverpool have. Um, But we'll head into Player Watch now, where I wanted to talk to you guys about the fact that we're less than a month from January, obviously, and I was curious which players at your club you think could maybe be on their way out in the winter window. So there's a number that could be. The two of the strongest links are probably Nicholas Pepe. These links aren't particularly strong. They're stronger than anyone else's are Nicholas Pepe and Eddie Nketiah. Um, Pepe just doesn't seem in favor. He did come on as a sub this weekend, but it'd been a while since he'd seen the pitch prior to that. Um, and he just, he has not worked out as a signing. And it seems if anyone is willing to give us money for him, it would make a lot of sense to move him on. Um, it seems like he's behind um, Martinelli, Saka, Odegaard, ESR, um, Lacazette, or not Lacazette, well, yes, Lacazette, in fact, that Lacazette will play up top and then Obama and can play wide over him. Um, he's behind a lot of players in pecking order, and it would make a lot of sense for all parties for him to move on. Um, and like he, his appearance at, as off the bench to um, against Southampton is his first in a while. Uh, I'll, we'll see if anyone's actually going to get this money for him. I know there were some links going around for like $25 million a couple weeks ago. I'm not sure how real those are, because I mean, if someone's going to give us $25 million for Nicholas Pepe right now, I'll fly to London, learn how to drive on the other side of the road, and take him to the airport myself. Hmm. Um, I, so we'll see if he's still at the club. I wouldn't be surprised if he's gone, but um, just based on what I assume his wages are pretty high and whether anyone will give us money for him, it wouldn't shock me if we end up holding on, having to hold on to him. Uh, and Kedia has six months left on his contract, and it's, been, it's, a, it's another case of the process behind Arteta seeming to want to keep a player being really weird because he'd seemed he hadn't really shown any interest in playing him until the last two weeks when there started being noise of him saying no I'm done and I want to leave and now he's come off the, he's come off the bench in the last couple of games um and there's and Arteta has actually said like we want to keep him we want to give him a new contract uh and it's I don't know if Eddie and Kenny is gonna be down for that um especially when like we showed no inclination to play him up until he said he wanted to leave. Now we're like, hey, no, we actually value you really highly and we want to keep you. Um, uh, I could totally see him leaving. Granted, the fact that he only has six months left on his contract may mean he just, he'll just run it out and um, sign some in the summer, but that is something that could happen. Uh, then there's a whole list of players who would make sense for one of them to leave, but I'm not sure anyone's going to pay or match their wages, so they'll probably end up sticking around. But like any of holding... Chambers or Mari, it would make sense for one of them to leave. Um, Kalasnet is six months left on his deal, so he's probably going to stick around him and leave on a free. Um, Cedric Suarez, it would make sense for him to leave, but again, I don't think anyone's going to pay his wages, like equal as matches wages, so he'll probably end up staying. Um, there's been more sounds about Ainsley Niles being unhappy with playing time because he was man of a match and then he hasn't played since. Um, again, Arteta, weird management of him. Um, so there's a number of players that could leave. Uh, who will actually leave? It's always weird, especially now that we're in like we're still in COVID world, where a lot of teams outside of England just don't have money. So it's like there's lots of players who it would make sense for them to leave. Whether they actually will, we'll see if anyone's willing to pay up. 
Yeah, from a Liverpool perspective, I think there are very few names that probably are sellable at the moment. Um, whether teams will be interested in them is, is another story. But you look specifically at um, Nat Phillips. Uh, we've got, you know, an abundance of centre-backs in the squad now. You know, you're looking at Van Dijk, Canate, Joe Gomez, Joel Matip are all ahead of Nat Phillips. And, you know, Nat Phillips kind of got kept in the summer. I, I think if, you know, if if there was a decent offer, I think we would have sold him. But we weren't aggressively looking to sell him in the summer because Van Dijk was coming off of a long-term injury. Joel Matip was coming off of a long-term injury. Joe Gomez was coming off of a long-term injury. And Canate, who we signed in the summer, he had had um, a, a semi-serious injury back in March uh, of this year. So all of those centre-backs were kind of coming back from injuries and we didn't know exactly how they would react and whether or not they would be you know, able to to carry the load so early on in the season. So I think Nat Phillips kind of had to sacrifice his career a little bit there or career projection by just sitting on the bench and, it, it, you know, not even on matchday squads most of the time, but sort of a break glass in case of emergency. Um, um, me personally, not. I, I, I don't think he is a livable caliber player, but I mean, the, what he did last season for us, uh, you know, debutizing at center back was absolutely amazing and and helped us move our, our midfielders back into midfield. So, you know, credit to him for stepping up then. But in terms of long-term future, I, I don't think he really has one at Liverpool, especially with our center backs sort of all getting back into the groove of things after injuries. And then you look further up, you know, up the field in terms of who else we could sell. I think Minamino was was another one that would have been sold uh, this winter window. Whether he does get sold, it will be interesting to see. But I think the fact that we did get the injuries to uh, Harvey Elliott and then also, you know, and, and Harvey's is more long-term injury in terms of he, he won't be back until late in the season if they even push him back to late in the season. They might just shut him down for the rest of the year and give him you know, a full, uh, you know, a full preseason to to really get up and running and ready for the next season. But he's going to be out. Um, and then Curtis Jones, who suffered, uh, you know, the, a head injury, which kind of is—I don't know if it's an embargo or what—but you know, it's, it's it's not being spoken about in terms of the details of that injury. That it's been kept very quiet. So it's he's always one where I'm kind of looking at the corner of my eye to see if he ever is, you know, in training pictures or anything like that. But it seems like maybe, you know, hopefully it's not anything serious, but they are being very cautious with when they bring him back. So, again, that's another player who's sort of that number eight or playing out wide player. So that's two of them that we'll be losing, uh, you know, in that position. And Minamino then kind of becomes a de facto guy that can come and deputize when the likes of Naby Keita do get injured. You know, Oxlade-Chamberlain also sometimes quite injury prone. Uh, these are players that would be in the squad rotation but aren't always available. So, yeah, it, it seems if it weren't for injuries, quite a few players would have gone. Um, but because of injuries, I think some moves will be held off until the summer and then I think the last person then maybe would be Divock Origi um, you know it, it, <laughs> he always pitches up with goals and, and you're thinking okay we've put him on the shop window is it time to then let him go but 
you know, the, for many reasons. Sometimes it's the club that's deciding that they want a lot more money than people are willing to offer. And then sometimes it's Divock, you know, not wanting to go to a specific club. So it, it just always is the perfect storm in terms of him staying with Liverpool. I don't mind him being at Liverpool personally because, I mean, I'm not the one paying the wages or anything like that. And he seems like a player that he 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 never kicks up a fuss, um, but when he gets called upon in big games, he somehow seems to always step up. So from my perspective, and as I said, because it's not my finances involved, I'm perfectly fine for him to be a player that you know you can always bring on in case of emergency. And then obviously the big thing with AFCON coming up, I don't see how you can let any of those forward players, and I include Minamino in there, you can't really let them go you'd probably be looking to add someone in there. But knowing Liverpool, I don't see them adding someone. They'll just roll with the people that they have, hoping that Firmino will be back. He should be back, um, especially before uh, AFCON gets up and running. So, yeah, I, I don't see much business, sorry, Liverpool fans, uh, for us this season. And then Loris Karius is still in our squad. I didn't realise that. Um, oh, he's not so, yeah, out on so, loan or in Turkey again or something? No, he's part of our squad. Um, his name's on our, our team sheets. Um, allegedly, not, obviously he's allegedly part there. of the squad. But like, yeah, he 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 didn't secure a move away. He didn't secure a loan away either. So he's still there. If anyone's interested, um, I don't know if Dan maybe. Do you mean like us, like individually? <laughs> yeah, we we could do a side deal here. You know, I, I see you guys don't want Pepe around. Um, maybe we we send Carrius. I mean, you've got space for another German keeper on your bench, don't you? Uh, no, we really don't, to be <laughs> honest. But um, if you want Carries to carry Pepe to the airport, that's fine. But other than that, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that is shocking. I didn't know that Carries was there. His his career took a very sharp turn very quickly after that Champions League final, which wasn't even entirely his fault, but apparently damaged his stock pretty significantly. Uh, we'll wrap up here with match preview. So, Dan, we'll start off with you. You're going to be hosting West Ham, who obviously have been pretty impressive this season, but seem to have uh, kind of hit a bit of a skid lately. So this is kind of a huge game for us. But like, um, as much as I've made it very clear I don't see us as a top-four team, technically we are still in like the conversation in terms of, you know, who has what number of points. We're only a point off fourth. Um so if we are going to make any kind of fuss in the top four race, um, well, you need to win this game straight up. West Ham is what is direct competition for that spot. Um, they've been better than us this season. It is a home game. Um, so hopefully we can take we, – I mean, we need to win this game if we're going to make any any real shot for fourth. And even for more more realistically, in my opinion, that like, um, top six battle, we really need to be taking um, three points. Uh, I would not consider us favorites at, at best. Since it's at home, I'd probably expect a draw um, just because I think they are a better team than us right now, but uh, we are at home. Um, so that's a pretty big advantage. Uh, so, yeah, I think if I am if I have to give a prediction, I'd probably say draw. Um, and if I have to pick a winner, I'd probably pick West Ham, but we'll see how it goes. Like I said, we are at home, um, so that helps a lot. Um, we shall see how it goes. Uh, it's the biggest game of the winter, of the winter fixtures for us, um, I'd say, without uh, without a doubt, really. Gotcha. And then, sorry, 
Gotcha. And then Tad will come to you. Liverpool facing the richest club in the world. Surely it'll be an instant classic. Oh, nope. That's Newcastle now. Currently very on track for relegation after what looked like a tide-turning win last week. Not so much after their performance against Leicester today. What do you expect to see in that match? Yeah, I think the 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 goal drought in inverted commas maybe that Liverpool are having the last couple of games it 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 might be fixed in this game. I think if you're a Liverpool striker, you're probably glad that it's this game coming up. I mean, they they didn't look too great against Leicester. Um, obviously, one um, one of the games that had a penalty in it. But I think the the issue for Newcastle in this game is they're very insistent under Eddie Howe and as is custom with Eddie Howe to play out from the back. And Liverpool absolutely love teams that are going to do that. If if you're going to play out the back, we're going to set um, pressing traps. We're going to get a lot of big chances that come off of presses. And I can see us being very aggressive in forcing them into situations where they're not going to be able to handle our press of their defensive players. And and, and we're gonna we're gonna be able to pick them off. I, I'm gonna go with a four 0 Liverpool win in that one. Um, yeah. <sighs> It, it's it's unfortunate timing for Newcastle coming up against a Liverpool side, as I said, who you know know that they haven't been scoring as many goals of late, and also know this is a very good opportunity for us to flex our muscles from a pressing standpoint uh, against a team that's going to allow us to do exactly that. Yeah, it's uh, not looking great for them. Although uh, they do have a very terrible December schedule, so you know. If they can get anything from any of those matches and assume that the people that'll be relegation candidates with them won't, then maybe a bit of upside for them after a very rough season. But you're probably right. <laughs> It'll probably be a multi-goal win there for Liverpool. Can, can confirm Liverpool do love it when teams play out from back and can definitely create big chances <laughs> against those teams. Yep. Can confirm. <laughs> that does seem to be the general case, yes. Uh, we will wrap the show up there, though, guys. So if you'd like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, now be a good time. Thanks for having me on. You can still get me on Twitter at the underscore jersey underscore fits. Thanks for having me on. You can find me on Twitter at Tad Predicts and on the EPL Index hosting a Tad Predictable podcast. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. It really was a pleasure. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable, and you can search for the podcast on all of your podcasting things, which you seem to have successfully accomplished if you're hearing this at minute 56-ish of this show. Uh, But again, thanks to these two for joining me today. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market